Good afternoon, everyone. This is another episode of Earth Life. And once again, we're considering the destiny of our home region and how we might inquire, explore, burrow down, and scroll back through time to discover where this landscape is headed, where it's been, the legacies of extraction, the native food ways, and the prospects for adding value and making economies from the land, from the landscape that are consonant with our goal for rebuilding and restoring the health of the underlying ecology. Talk about a mouthful of a mission. We are young farmers here at the end of Leighton Point, and we're speaking to a now, let's see, she's an anthropologist out in New Mexico. This is Gina Ray La Serva. Welcome, Gina. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Could you give a little bit of your background, how you arrived at the project of foraging? What, your, um, what brought you to that point in your life when you first went out to forage? Sure. Um, so, yeah, today we're talking about my book, Feasting Wild, in Search of the Last Untamed Food, which was recently published. Um, so it's a wide-ranging book, not just about foraging, but hunting as well and land use practices. Um, but probably the first time I foraged was when I was a little kid growing up in New Mexico, and we would go out into the arroyos to look for juniper berries or prickly pear cactus fruits, Indian paintbrush flowers. You can eat the center of those, other edible flowers. We'd go up into the mountains for miner's lettuce or wild raspberries. So there was always a variety of things. I have spent a lot of time with people who are seaweed people and discovered that there's a kind of particular kind of people who are drawn to these wild and feral ways. Can you talk about your inquiry and, and the human communities that you've been tracking around the world? Sure. Um, so around a billion people still rely on wild foods for sustenance. Uh, so it's actually still a significant population of the world rely on hunting and gathering for their food sources. But I also met people who are chefs or people who are interested in wild food less for subsistence reasons and more for um, flavor reasons or novelty reasons. So I met all kinds of people, um, folks who'd grown up hunting and so it was part of their family tradition. Um, other folks who were coming to the practice because they were really intrigued by it and found something different within themselves when they were out in the wild, um, hunting or gathering or fishing. There's a subsistence and kind of anthropological continuous traditions. And then there's the fetishists and the gastronomists and the kind of specialty food world of hyper commodified foraged foods. Which do you prefer? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I have a preference. The book definitely looks at how those two things interact very differently with the global capitalist market um, and also with the land. So uh, in many ways, the, the fetishist approach is a bit more extractive because people who are eating foraged foods in restaurants have no idea what that landscape is about. They're relying on other people's labor uh, to extract those foods. They're not always harvested sustainably. On the other hand, people who are hungry have very 
little desire to conserve things because the, the first aim is to feed themselves in the morning. And so conservation becomes difficult when you're, you know, relying on these foods to feed yourself. Um, so it, it can be either one can can be problematic or respectful of the earth. It really just depends. The wonderful book by Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass, has a lot to say about the honorable harvest and bringing an ethos of respect to the work of wild crafting, to the practice of wild crafting. Um, were you able to discern some themes in your own inquiry about how different practitioners were kind of making peace with their role in removing some, but not too much of the wild ecosystem? So the book really, it, it ranges both location-wise and time-wise. So it spends, I spend a lot of time looking at historical practices. Um, and I was quite interested to see how much of our uh, economy was actually reliant on extracting wild food. So during the 19th century, um, as the market economy was spreading across the, the United States, we consumed hundreds of different kinds of wild birds, and it became um, a, a gastronomic phenomenon in big cities to go out and eat wild birds. So, you know, it's really interesting to see how our relationship with these wild foods um, is never as simple as just the individual, but is always wrapped up in larger economies, in larger culture, um, and in larger land use practices. Uh, so it's it's very fascinating to see how different cultures interact with the wild. In many indigenous American um, land management practices actually increase the abundance of wild animals and plants in the landscape. So their practice of creating food for themselves uh, was was ecologically created ecological abundance. Um, so you know we definitely have something to learn from those kinds of practices. Uh, where the disturbance of humans on the landscape leads uh, to further abundance over time rather than depletion. The science exists to say that millennia of wild harvest did not diminish the abundance of all these wild foods in instance after instance. Around here, we harvest mushrooms and we harvest algae and we harvest wild blueberries. And we're always very interested in making value-added products. We harvest wild fish from the river and from the sea to make fish sauce. And we're really interested in, you know, what's the most nutrition? What's the most vitamins and minerals? Can we ferment it? Can we can it? Can we make it into sauce or syrup? And in fact, so many of the indigenous foodways are also about preserving the harvest. Do you want to talk about some of your examples that you discovered in your research of how these traditions vary in and how we you know capture all these important minerals yeah well one of the things that uh i was interested in in this book was trying to understand how we recover some of that knowledge because due to the genocidal creation of the united states a lot of this culinary knowledge was lost um, people learned how to do these things by doing them with their their elders repeating it. It wasn't recipes that were written down necessarily, um, thousands of years of experimentation. And then when uh, colonialism happened, some of those things were written down, but they were almost always filtered through 
you know, the, the worldview of the people writing them down, the colonizers. And so it's really hard to know exactly what and how things were happening. Um, but it's really interesting to start recovering some of that lost knowledge. And there's many tribes around the country who are working on those types of projects. Um, but some interesting culinary uh, examples that I had researched were um, baking game fowl in clay. So then you take off the clay and it removes all the feathers from the bird. Um, another one was uh, mixing tallow with um, roses and preserving it in a fawn skin bag in order to create kind of like a candy treat. Um, people would freeze buffalo in the river over the winter and then in the spring it would thaw out and be somewhat fermented. So really amazing, ingenious um, culinary practices, uh, you know, it makes us realize kind of how um, we've lost a lot of the diversity and, and interesting ways of preserving and preparing foods as we've moved towards refrigeration and industrial agriculture. And so then the chefs, the fancy chefs are blazing the way with all this kind of fermenting stuff. Like in New Mexico, there's a lively trade in wild forage foods, the pinyon nuts and the herbs that are sold on the side of the road, like the teas and the like kidney tea. And I wonder, um, do you see a convergence of those worlds? Uh, of which worlds? Of the kind of high culinary world and these more kind of folkways world. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people are increasingly interested in learning how to, you know, make sauerkraut or kimchi at home, um, learning how to make herbal concoctions. So it's definitely, I think, being a, a resurgence in the popular culture. And that was part of what I was interested in researching for this book was why at this moment people are suddenly very interested in relearning, you know, these things that maybe their grandmothers did. And I do think that fancy restaurants uh, have some place to, some role to play in that experimentation. But we have to make sure as these things are rediscovered, quote unquote, that, um, you know, it's not a form of gentrification in a way of, of people kind of taking knowledge that doesn't belong to them or, or practices that, um, you know, the pinon in New Mexico is, uh, it's not a, a very reliable crop. We don't have pinons every single year. So most pinon that you buy in the store, something comes from China. It's a different kind of tree. Um, but, you know, the earth doesn't have regular cycles uh, like capitalism would like it to have. So we have to really make sure that we're operating within places and within, uh, you know, time-based knowledge. Let's talk a little more about that, because this is one of the big principles of commons-based land management, is that there's a direct connection between the kind of sensing humans who are tuning in to the land and the landscape and the possibilities of the season, and the governance and decision-making around how much can be taken, where we are going to be, you know, and who has what and what which rights are, are and are not you know, appropriate. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, the, the sort of idea of the tragedy of the commons that if a resource isn't protected by some sort of law um, that, you know, everyone will try and take as much as they can and it will be destroyed. But really that is, uh, doesn't look at the larger context of community of place-based existence. You know, it's harder and harder in the world because I think 
we're in some ways more nomadic than ever. People don't stay in places their whole lives. Um, but it really takes, I've been telling people, if you want to learn to forage, spend an entire year walking the same path and noticing the plants that grow there and don't pick anything, but just start to have a relationship with that place. Uh, learn what time the, the plants are flowering, learn which season they seem to be more abundant or less abundant, what plants grow near them. And so really you start to have a relationship with the place. And that to me is part of the joy of foraging is, is that relationship with the non-human world. Uh, and it takes time and it takes commitment, just like any kind of relationship. Well, the um, marine biologist, when I asked her to explain, you know, in my very dutiful college educated way, you know, what would be the correct approach to, you know, conservation minded seaweed harvest. She had a similar answer. She said, go spend a hundred hours on the beach and mm -hmm. watch the, watch the seals and watch the birds who are coming and learn all their names. And when you feel like you have a sense of when they're eating and when they're not eating and when they're feeding their babies and when they're not feeding their babies. And when you feel like you have enough intimacy with the ecosystem, then you can start to think about, you know, removing material. Yeah, absolutely. And in the, you know, the quote unquote old days, it, it was sort of, maybe there was a story around the time of year that you harvested, or there was a, a food tradition or cultural tradition or a holiday or a, a moon calendar that you followed. And that was all based on these, you know, generations of, of watching and listening to the earth and understanding that relationship. And then, you know, we really lost that when we lost our relationship to the land, that those kinds of things were severed. And now we're in a period where um, what we're seeing is, is the natural world is changing at such a pace that even in our own short lifetimes, you can see the difference in, in you know, climate change impacts, in development impacts. Um, so in many ways, invasive species, it becomes harder to have that relationship because the, the reliability of the earth in many ways is changing. Things that farmers did for hundreds of years no longer work. Uh, because of climate uh, changes or changes to the soil. So how do we kind of, you know, recreate this relationship with a place using the wisdom of the past, but realizing that these places have been impacted for thousands of years by human um, exposure, uh, extraction, and, and change. I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, you talk about these en enormous shell middens in the past, we, we forget how abundant wild foods used to be in the landscape. You know, we, we think that this sort of current level of wild animals seems like a lot, but it's a, it's a real paucity compared to what used to exist. Um, one of the chapters in my book looks at the green turtle in the Caribbean, and it's estimated that when Columbus reached the Americas, there were something like 30 million green turtles. There were so many sea turtles that the sailors would use them to navigate at night because just by the sound of the, the turtles swimming in the ocean. And they thought that they were little rocks uh, out in the ocean. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with this book was, was in a way to acknowledge um, how, how much poverty, ecological poverty we all live in today. And I think we have to acknowledge that and grieve that in order to move forward. And grieve and learn and tune 
And it seems like probably also figure out how to act in a restorative way. I mean, that if we're out in the field and we are coming into a population of really healthy native plants, that we're bringing some seed back to our nurseries and growing out those plants. I'm thinking about rhodiola. I'm thinking about sweetgrass. I'm thinking about New Jersey tea in my you know ecosystem that are native plants that I love to find and and harvest from, or I would love to find and harvest from, but that are, you know, endangered in their habitats. And that part of the work is um, extending or creating gardens that are sustenance gardens for the, for the target plants, like kind of gardening our way back to a, a rewilded rekindling. Yeah, I mean, I end, I end my book talking about my sister's garden, which very much resembles sort of a wild space in the way that she intercrops things. And um, and I, I agree with you. I mean, people have been asking me how my food habits have changed since writing this book. And in a lot of ways, I try and eat less wild things now because I do think that what we need to focus on is rewilding our agricultural system so that it more closely mimics, uh, you know, ecological systems. But it, it, ecological systems tend to have a lot of diversity and not a lot of abundance of any one thing. And so how do we bring that into a, a food system where people expect to have certain foods in certain levels of abundance at all times of the year, right? So some of it is also changing our own expectations around what should be available um, and, and, and I think you're right, bringing these, these wild things into our garden so that we can, you know, try and cultivate as many of them as possible. Um, I don't think domestication in itself is a bad thing, but the way that Western domestication based on Western ideas of a, of a split between humans and nature, of, a, of an idea that humans are tame and nature is wild, that has been really damaging in our relationship to the planet into our food. Um, but there's plenty of examples, mostly from indigenous cultures of, of ways where instead of planting the same potato, you plant the variety that will do best on that side of the hill and that mound with that amount of temperature. You know, we have a lot of land race varieties in New Mexico that have been evolving for hundreds of years to these very specific things. And, and so I think if we can get back towards that idea that, that foods exist within places uh, in relationship with people, you know, we, we will be closer to creating an agricultural system that is more like wild, wild harvested and, and also protecting spaces where wild foods come from. I mean, unfortunately, we still live in a time when, when wild places are being deforested, torn down, uh, paved over, you know, before we even have any idea of what is even existing there. I'm thinking about the confidence to consider that we could rekindle more habitat that's functional and usable by say our target pollinators, the butterflies, the hummingbirds, um, the native creatures and insects who rely on these seasonal floristic resources that we can provide them. And that there's, you know, that, that we tune back also to this like long standing human inquiry of, you know, where are the potent places on the landscape that we can 
kind of initiate these interventions. So in the case of Hawaii, I think about the fish ponds and the, you know, pretty extraordinary capacity of the native Hawaiians who, you know, came from Polynesia, the diasporic, you know, migration and came from quite different ecosystems, but were able to like tune in and figure out how to interact with that watershed way and discover where to put their fish ponds and where to put their taro patties. And it, and it's, and it's almost like we have to have also the confidence to believe that we might be able to not only discover um, these more indigenous food ways, but rediscover in ourselves the capacity for discovery. I mean, yeah. it's a long, it's, a, it's almost like you don't have the confidence to do it at first to think, well, I could choose which weeds I want in my garden through a process of discovery and Maybe I'd like some more amaranths, or I'd like some more alyssum, or I'd like nigella, or I'd want to be, you know, introduce into my kind of feral ecology of the garden some of these characters who, you know, whose roles I start to understand. I mean, part of it is just experimenting, but part of it is trying to listen to what wants to be, it seems like. Definitely. And I think that listening, you know, what came to mind for me is how do you balance confidence without too much hubris? Because I think humans have had this idea that we know, you know, how to terraform the earth in ways that are correct and, and have these huge backlashes. So how do we look at managing a landscape with both confidence, but also knowing that we actually know very little about how these ecologies work. Um, they're so infinitely complex and, and we have to be humble in that. And I think you're right. Listening, the act of, really actively listening, which we don't teach in our culture. We don't know how. And I, I think that's become, you know, it's such a theme right now with Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, that um, we do have to do more listening. It's it's part of an active listening and not just hearing, but truly, truly, as you say, tuning into what is being said. Um, and, you know, right now the earth is in a lot of pain and I think humans are in a lot of pain. It's hard not to separate those. You can't separate those two things. So part of what Feasting Wild for me was, was actually reckoning with the heartbreaking grief of the sixth extinction of the current sort of relationship that we all have to wild nature and, and being able to, um, to experience that heartbreak fully so that we can move forward and love the planet again. You know, I think like a, like any kind of heartbreak, you, you have to process it and grieve it in order to be open, open your heart to the next love. Uh, to, to and, and I think that's really what we are doing as farmers, as conservationists, is figuring out how to love the planet and love ourselves within that ecology, right? So we're not just feeling guilt or shame about who we are as people, as a species. Um, we're such a complicated species, you know. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be a cosmic joke, I think. <laughs> I'm having a summer with young people in a young farm and uh, watching them contend with, my God, it's a lot of work to grow all this you know, food. And how do you recommend for young ones who are wanting to walk down this path with humility and you know, start to learn and follow the flowers or what does Gary Snyder say, live light and learn the flowers. Um, just share a little bit of 
how you took the research seriously in your own life and what guidance you might give those who are just stepping into this awareness now, other than obviously reading your book. <laughs> yes, everyone should buy the book. But um, I, yeah, I think that, you know, the labor part is, is so interesting because it is a lot of work. It is a lot of physical work. Um, foraging is a lot of time. And that's part of why it's become a privilege in our modern world is because most people don't have the time to go out and forage for things or the access to the landscapes where those foods exist. So I do think recognizing the privilege in that and how kind of ironic and strange that that has become a privilege, whereas for 99% of human history, it's just what we did. Um, and and so how, how do we remember to love, you know, that privilege and that labor? I really, I really love the fact that uh, people are moving kind of away from the idea of sustainability and towards regeneration. Um, and uh, what was the other word you used? Um, revitalization. Restoration. Restoration. Yeah. Re restoration, revitalization, regeneration. Um, you know, these things. Reenchantment. Sorry. <laughs> Reenchantment. Reenchantment. Yes. Um, returning to something else. You know, I think. I mean, I, I'm just in such awe of the young people in the world because I can't really imagine what it's been like to grow up with um, this global understanding of all of these crises that are existing and also just kind of the cultural um, abundance that still exists in the world. You know, I think we, we have such a larger understanding of the world at this moment. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I think the youth are really... I don't know what it, it means to live your whole life kind of under the threat of existential crises like climate change, but um, I find their their energy and their lack of cynicism really empowering. Um, but I, I think what I, I would say to the youth is just follow your curiosity. Um, you know, the curiosity killed the cat, but curiosity also gave the cat a ton of adventures. And for me, this book was also about that, was, was feeling like as... As a woman, I've been told not to follow my curiosity and I was ready to do that, to go out into the world, to not be afraid to ask questions, to have these authentic interactions with people and come to them with an open heart of really curious about who this person is and their life and how they got to be where they were. Um, just as I have that curiosity about nature. So I spent a lot of my childhood sitting and watching ants you know, pile up tiny rocks and watching the birds and trying to understand. And so I think curiosity is, is so much a part of what it means to be human. Um, and and it's, it's important to honor that part of ourselves. And then I think it's also important to um, take a break from all the noise, you know, spend time in the quiet and in the dark and, and take a, a moment and a breather from all the conversations that are happening on the internet and social media, uh, you know, spend a week in a place without electricity if you can. It's just, I think those kinds of experiences are so, so nourishing to the soul and also necessary for imagining a future of survival. Well, survival does seem like something that we could imagine being not possible. Yeah, I mean, I think we want to hope for mutual thriving, right? Because it is, in my belief, possible that we create a world that is mutual thriving of humans of all kinds and of non-human species. It's very possible. But I also think that it feels like a moment where 
there, we have to make that choice, you know, whether we're going to work towards that or we're going to sort of continue down business as usual. And, and then it's more about can we survive all of these unintended consequences that we've brought into the world? Part of the discomfort of the white privilege conversation that's going on right now extends down into any one of us holding a cell phone is a part of an extractive, violent supply chain, period. New paragraph. Any one of us that's living in a city or has received a college education or participates in a normative way in email and American society is inherently part of the problem. And so somehow there's a, a, a acknowledging that we've all got a downshift our expectation of material gratification, technology, travel, you know, uh, uh, our, you know, travel, mobility, et cetera, et cetera, is this kind of, um, it's inferred by all the environmental literature that we, you know, opt into in terms of our identity politics. But I feel like um, actually practicing uh, what that what that would mean if we translated it out into the material economy of our lives is a stretch. And I say that as a as a you know as a white girl with a college education and an email. Right. Yeah. I mean, I used to have this debate a lot amongst uh, friends at, at Yale Grad School. I was at the forestry school. And, you know, the question of is it more ethical to just remove yourself from the system and say, I'm going to go back to the land and live off the land and, you know, almost like a prepper lifestyle where you're really you're really just super self-sufficient. Or is it actually that's not ethical because you're leaving behind this system and a lot of marginalized people who have they don't have the privilege to get out of the system. They don't have access to the land or to the capital that's needed to start that transformation and so maybe it's more ethical to try and work within the system. Um, I am at the point where I think we need all of it. I think we need everything that we can right now to throw at these problems. We need everybody doing whatever it is they can. Um, I have a hard time with a lot of the green capitalist stuff, but I think some of our problems are so big that we need green capitalists and we need eco-anarchists and we need the whole spectrum of people fighting for the planet and for the future. We're flying around, flying around to talk about things is almost as ineffective, it feels like, as swiping left and compiling a a portfolio of opinions about ourselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, they both feel somewhat futile. I just saw a tweet about someone wishing there was a climate change book that didn't involve going to all these different countries to talk about climate change, you know, reporting from all these countries. And I wrestled with that with my own book with Feasting Wild because I did travel to all these different places. And in many ways, it made me not want to travel anymore. It made me really want to get rooted somewhere and spend that time somewhere, you know, cultivating things. Um, But again, that's a privilege that I have. And so it's how do we unpack all these different layers that, you know, someone in an inner city would totally want to start farming, but they don't have access to that food or to that land uh, or the knowledge to be able to do it. How do you guys deal with that in your organization? Yeah. And the further question of how do we, how do we who have the privilege to have access, figure out how to proactively share that access with others in ways that are appropriate and compatible and peaceful. Like one of the big things 
around here is, I mean, we're on Passamaquoddy territory. We're on the edge of the reservation. And there is still a tremendous amount of the economy here that is based on, you know, hunting, fishing, um, digging for worms, catching elvers, netting for spelt and alewives. So there's a very active informal economy that is, you know, some based in subsistence, some based on this, you know, 19th century kind of uh, colonized export of commodities from the kind of wild and semi-wild lands. Mm -hmm. And one of the great challenges for indigenous peoples who wanted to practice their traditional wild crafting, as I've read, is having continued access to the sweetgrass meadows, having continued access to the huckleberry fields, having continued access to the willow coppices, etc. Right. So a lot of what I was looking at in the book were places where there's national parks. Um, and for instance, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo and trying to understand how conservationists are working to uh, regulate the wild meat trade so that it's not so damaging to the, the forest, to the Congo Basin animals. And it's really hard there because people's ancestors used to hunt in these areas. And then during Belgian colonization and during the era of Mobutu, Mobutu, who was a dictator, um, these national parks were created and people were kicked off the land. And yet, and so when they go hunting in these places, they're called, you know, poachers, but really they're hunting in places that had been traditional hunting grounds for hundreds of years for their families. And yet, if you go back even further, you realize that some of those communities had migrated in you know, 600 BC into these landscapes and displaced other hunter-gatherer tribes. So I think one of the interesting questions around restoration, um, around retribution, things like that, is, is how far back do you go? At what point is the starting point for these sort of decisions? Um, and, and yet, so land access is very much an issue all over the world, uh, you know, whether it's through just simple people buying property for private development or much larger and much more damaging um, state, you know, states taking over lands for highways or for um, large infrastructure projects like energy um, development or hydroelectric. I mean, this is still happening all over the world all the time um, where people are fighting for their land. And I think that's such an important issue, you know, and, and in, I was, talking to um, a Native American friend recently, and, and they were like really appreciative of the acknowledgement that people have started doing of acknowledging, you know, I'm on um, Tewa land, I'm on stolen, uh, you know, indigenous land that I think that I think that practice is really beautiful. But they were also saying, give us our land back. You know, it's, it's one thing to acknowledge it, it's another to actually make those changes. So I think in the next years, we're going to have some really interesting um, questions about how to make these things more equitable, uh, you know, whether it's regulations or, or giving land back. Well, and we have this interesting moment also where, you know, 70% of the agricultural land is held by people who are in their mid-60s and 70s. You know, so you right. have basically the elders of our society currently owning the farmland and, you know, most of the equity in our society in the form of real estate um, who are who are going to be making decisions about what um, 
well, they didn't make the decisions about what proceeded them, but they can make decisions about what succeeds them. And I wonder if, and it's a tender question, there will be a move to gifting that land into community stewardship, regenerative agriculture, access for young farmers, access for farmers of color, access for recreation and access for, um, you know, the conservation movement has succeeded at getting, you know, some good estate planning and tax Mm write-offs to achieve some of those goals. But I think the real question is, are we in this moment beyond, you know, experiencing the fury, rage and fear able to be constructive in the economic and social forms that it takes to hold land in, a, in commons, in a restorative manner, right. and build discipline of our own behaviors and agreements um, to be effective with that. And it's, I'd say, not at all a given. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, how do we also um, hold that in, in the long-term perpetuity? Because as soon as one generation goes, then, you know, uh, one of the interesting points of research that I uncovered during writing this book was looking at how some of the last kind of quote-unquote pristine old growth forests in Europe um, were actually the king's hunting preserves back in the Middle Ages. And so the kings passed these laws in order to protect the landscapes from deforestation because they wanted to go hunting in these forests and be able to serve wild game animals at their dinners. And um, as a result, we still have these pockets of old growth forests that otherwise might have been cut down during a period of time when when lumber was needed for basically everything society did. So I think you're very right is how do we how, you know, in many ways, that was a form of conservation rooted in privilege. And yet it kind of worked for our purposes and that these forests were able to last the last 600 years. Um, so I think it's it's such an interesting and complicated topic of how we create conservation that that will last for generations that is also equitable, right? That isn't just kind of open access for everybody to do whatever they want on um, and yet isn't entirely rooted in, you know, keeping people off the land. It's, it's really challenging, I think. Well, and I, I think it requires us to look at restoration, period. Like that, that reparations and restoration are the same thing, mm-hmm. that, that there isn't enough intact wild thriving ecosystem for everyone to come along and go build their you know their 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 basket with posies you know and my very scolding aunt who's a nun you know she would always say only pick your bouquet of flowers on your as you're coming home from your journey (laughs) there's enough flowers but not if everybody just collects too much it's essentially the project of getting the right to restore so not just the right to access which has been you know more of a kind of human rights rights Mm -hmm. rights framework Mm -hmm. around indigenous peoples having those rights but that now in a time of refugeeism and habitat splintering and just such extreme degradation that the the new right is the right to access the right to restore and then the right to subsist from that which one has wrought from the land which is not something that you are reading much about yet. I think, I feel like it's emergent in the conversations, like for instance, you know, Juniper Ridge, they make wildcrafted California native plant, you know, incense and smudge sticks and soap and oil and stuff. 
And they've been in, you know, very active conversations with national parks like Muir Woods and um, state park lands around the vegetative strategies that those land managers are um, are working with for kind of large landscape restoration plans. I feel like that's a lot of the project now is not just what recipe to do what weird obscure thing, but it's more like what access regime to bring the work of Hawthorne and Elderberry and watercress into landscapes that have been simplified and degraded by the kind of historical uses. Right. Yeah. And there's, I mean, this made me think of a company in New Mexico called Dryland Wilds, and they make perfume and other botanicals out of mostly invasive species um, or naturalized invasive species that are super abundant. And there's definitely a huge movement amongst wildcrafters to start eating those kinds of uh, in, invasive species as well. And so the idea being that you're actually helping the landscape instead of just extracting things, you're, um, helping to, to take out what can often be very aggressive species that, that, uh, crowd out the native species. But I think with any of these projects, you know, one of the most important things is that we just do examine our values. So what values are we restoring the landscape towards, right? What, what are the values that are inherent in these practices and, and not necessarily putting any judgment on them, but just being really aware of them, that whenever humans are involved in the project, we come with a set of values. Right. And then having a little bit of discipline to go and study more fully all of the kind of antecedent practices. I just learned that in the Sahel region, half of female income House female household income comes from the processing of the shea nuts. And the shea nuts fall from the shea nut trees. But the shea nut trees are not owned by the women, but they are protected by the women. And they're protected by all the people out of respect for the women who harvest them and the critical role that that plays in food security and, um, you know, income generation. And so you have the situation in which uh ownership does not mean stewardship and stewardship does not require ownership but then we better have enough cultural discipline to have something that holds the ship together right yeah and i think that was potentially easier um amongst indigenous societies because in many of them had very strong uh cultural roles there was very strong gender roles um and it was less of a time of global societal mixing you know I think it it's it's kind of like part of what we're up against is is just all these much larger um, shifts in the world and the way that we we think about things but I think it's also really exciting because it means that some of these long-held ideas of binaries between things or um, you know that that it's kind of I mean that's another thing that the the youth are so amazing about is they're rejecting all these old long-held sort of ideas about what is right in terms of gender or sexuality um, relationships. So, you know, and I think that they recognize that the the wild doesn't operate under binary structures, right? It's, it's all a continuum. It's all process. It's all flow. And so how do we tap into those ways of managing things that isn't just about these sort of strict ownership ideas or strict um, access ideas? 
to conclude, will you give us a couple of your favorite books? I really loved Anna Singh's A Mushroom at the End of the World. Um, she talks a lot about how um, Matsutake mushrooms are really only exist in human disturbed landscapes um, and just the ways that the, that harvest um, gets put into a global economy. So it's a really fascinating book. Another one that I love is um, J.A. Baker's The Peregrine and this guy follows um, hawks for an entire year and his writing is very poetic and it starts, you start to sort of feel as if you are a hawk. So how do we, you know, imagine ourselves in non-human species um, existences because they're so different than ours. So I think that those are a couple really great books, very different from each other, but both really wonderful. And, you know, kind of Annie Dillard's um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is wonderful just as a foundation for nature writing and for observation and kind of quietness. So those are a few. Thank you so much for joining us in this time. And um, I, if you ever make it down east in Maine, please come visit. Absolutely. And I hope you see you over there in your ecosystem sometime. Yeah, definitely let me know if you make your way to New Mexico. And thank you for the really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. Much thanks. Much thanks. Ciao, ciao, everyone. Oh, <laughs>